morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. If you have your Bibles, please open to the gospel according to Mark chapter 12. We will stand in a moment and take verses 35 through 44. Would you stand please for the reading of God's word? And if you are joining us online and you can, why don't you stand with us? Verse 35, then Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feast, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrans. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Surely I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Please be seated. The Eyes of Christ, that's this morning's title for this consideration. Decades after these events took place, the Gospels were published, and Then Christ showed John history future, we would call predictive prophecy. We know it as the book of Revelation. And John tells us that he saw the Lord leading the armies to earth to take control, to rule over the world. And he also mentions this, and it seems almost in passing, but it is quite intense. He mentions that he saw the look in the eyes of Jesus as he led the saints here to take rule. It's in Revelation 19, verse 12. His eyes like a flame of fire. So here's John getting this revelation. And in the revelation, as he's seeing the future events, there's this one scene where he sees the Lord. And he looks into the eyes of the Lord And that's what he says he saw. He says his eyes like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except for himself. But just looking at that 12th verse in Revelation 19 from the bottom of the verse up. The name that only he himself knew means that of course there are many things about Christ that are beyond us. They are eternal. Some will be revealed, and others may never be revealed. But we do know that there are things about him that lead up to us saying he is worthy of our worship. But the crowns, of course, his rule, his authority, his prerogative as creator, 
His eyes like a flame of fire. Those eyes were sovereign. Those eyes were omniscient. They knew everything. No one had to tell him anything. They were pure, but also they were purifying. And that's part of the idea. He's coming to earth to purify, to clean up the world. John, again, it stood out for him. And when he walked on earth as the Savior, as he was doing in this section of Scripture, he called the religious leaders who were dishonest, who were impersonators, he called them out. And he said that they were ignorant. They were ignorant of their own Scripture. He was saying, you're not getting a pass on this. Not in your position. I expect more from you and you're not delivering, nor do you want to deliver. And he said this without apology. Matthew chapter 15, on a different occasion, his disciples came to him and said, we're told. And they're coming to him and said, Lord, kind of tone it down. You're offending people. He said, uh, Matthew says, then his disciples came to him and said, do you, not, uh, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And Christ responds. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. He's plucking up the weeds. He's not apologizing for these truths. They, these Pharisees, the Sadducees, or the, the scribes who are the lawyers collectively, the leaders. On another occasion, Luke writes, Then one of the lawyers, mainly the scribes will call that, answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. And he said, Woe to you also, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So he, he comes up, you're, you're offending us, and he throws it on even hotter. The eyes of Christ, they are pure, and he is every bit Lord. And when I say every bit, I mean he is the Yahweh of the Old Testament he is the Lord in the New Testament. He is both Master and God. And he's going to bring that up himself, and that's why I'm taking the time to introduce this section. And Christ saw enough of their dirt to not care if they were offended. And he didn't care about the consequences either. He was doing what he was supposed to do and leaving us as an example in the process. Now we look at verse 35 and we try to color this all in. And Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So here he's connecting himself with David and the Psalm, Psalm 110 this time he's using. Throughout his exchanges with these religious leaders, he's been using Scripture, and he continues to use Scripture. And there is great significance in that surrounding relationship between Jesus Christ and the characters in Psalm 110. Matthew says this, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question that we have here in Mark. So not only were the scribes there, the Pharisees were there. And where the Pharisees were, likely those Sadducees were there, all of them were there. None of this is wasted. The common people were there also. He's still on the temple mount. He's still in the precincts of, of the temple. And he's teaching and he's irritating them. Because he's such a threat. The same way today. Christ irritates people. He irritates the guilty. 
He irritates his opponents. They have no problem using his name in vain as though it were vain. And the day of disappointment will come if they do not snap out of it. And hopefully we'll be part of that process. Remember, the world is not our enemy directly. They are our opportunity to serve the Lord. We're looking to seek and to save as he did. But where it says here, then Jesus answered and said, verse 35, while he taught in the temple. So he's teaching. We're not told what he's teaching on. But what emerges out of this teaching is he's got to address these scribes. Maybe he was teaching on humility or integrity because they lack both. But whatever it is that he was teaching, out comes this, this address to those in his audience that need to be addressed. How is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? So this was a common teaching because it is found in the Old Testament. One of the first places it's found is in 2 Samuel 7 when Nathan the prophet was asked by David. David said, I live in a palace. I want to build God a house. And Nathan said, go do it all that you want. And then God said to Nathan, uh, no, that's not right. I need you to go back to David and tell him he can't build me a house. But I want you to tell him I'm going to build him a house. And Nathan goes back. And of course, within that is God saying, your throne is going to be forever, David. I'm going to connect to you, the Messiah, my son, and then he spends the rest of the time, the Holy Spirit does, educating us and filling in answers that we otherwise would not have even the knowledge to ask, but greatly benefit from. And we call it the New Testament. Emmanuel, God with us, in his name shall be called Jesus. So, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? They understood, they accepted that Messiah would be connected to David. They had no dispute with that, but did they connect it to the genealogical records at the temple with Jesus Christ? That's all they had to do. Go down to the temple and say, let's look this man up and let's see if he's related to, to David because he is doing some incredible things. He is making some bodacious claims. We need to verify this. But they did not do that. Why not? They didn't want the truth. It was offensive to them. And so there was another side uh, to their answer, and it wasn't a good one. Verse 36, Christ continues, For David said by the Holy Spirit, Yahweh said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So here he's quoting Psalm 110, verse 1. But before we move into this, we can't ignore this very profound statement that God the Son makes about God the Holy Spirit he says, David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, God speaks to people. He spoke to David. Not just on this occasion. We cannot overvalue the strength of that teaching that he said by the Holy Spirit. You have, a, you know, you'll come across Christians, quench not the Holy Spirit when they're doing things that are disruptive. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's the human spirit. And they're trying to blame it on the Holy Spirit. And a swift pop upside the head usually jars them out of it. No, we can't do that. But I do dream about it from time to time. Mostly at stoplights. No, I don't. That's being silly. But that's my break. I had to, the intensity sometimes gets so. I don't want to. Let's get back to this. 
So again, using the scripture to deal with these fellows. And uh, sections that they dared to try to use against them, he corrected in front of them and everybody else. But this time, quoting Psalm 110, which I already mentioned, the Jews had acknowledged this was a messianic psalm. And it says, Yahweh said to Adonai, Yahweh, that covenant name of God, Adonai meaning the master, the Lord. Then if you look at Psalm 110, you'll find out that the Adonai in that psalm then begins to judge as king, as ruler. Which means the Adonai in Psalm 110 is equal with Yahweh in Psalm 110. We're getting a look at the Trinity in the Old Testament. Well, two parts of the Trinity in the Old Testament. He is divine. Again, the Jews today deny Messiah is not going to be divine. Well, they, they concocted that after Christ came. But before that, they were saying Christ, the Messiah, is going to be divine. They just weren't ready to accept it when Jesus showed up as the Messiah and all of his divinity with him. And they began to backpedal and have done so sadly ever since. In fact, I'll get to a Proverbs 30 in a moment. A psalm which they tried to spin to the nation of Israel and take it away from Messiah, but they cannot do that intellectually with any degree of honesty. Well, in Psalm 110, David hears Yahweh speak to Adonai, the Lord, inviting Adonai to sit next to him. In other words, putting him on the same level, next to his throne. Such a one could only be equal with God. No one else could share this honor. None of the angels were invited to sit next to the throne, sit next to the Father on the throne. Only the Christ. And uh, Isaiah six, I saw Adonai sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. It is proper. It is right in Psalm one ten. All of the figures are divine in that conversation, what David heard. David understood that Yahweh was speaking to Adonai and they were equal in their authority, even if he did not understand it all. Christ is saying that the Messiah is going to be the son of David. He's going to be that Lord, that Adonai. And David's been dead a thousand years at the time these events are taking place. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's John the Baptist. Prepare the way of who? Who was John preparing the way for? Well, the Hebrew in that verse of Isaiah 40, which is quoted in the New Testament, Mark picks it up right away. Yahweh. Prepare the way of Yahweh. But, but I thought it was Jesus coming. Well, Jesus is Yahweh. That's the point. Make straight his Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, you can spend your time trying to him and haw. Well, it really doesn't mean that. It means that. No, it means that. Proverbs chapter 30. Here, uh, he personifies, well, speaking of God, he says, Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Question mark. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? 
Well, any Jew would say, that's, that's Yahweh, that's Jehovah. And then the question is asked by, what is his name and what is his son's name, if you know? Is that not profound? He's playing it right out. God has a son that is on his level. And that is the verse that modern Jews will say, well, he's talking about the nation Israel because we're sons of God and they're this, this, and that's not the point. These the definite articles here don't allow that. You're being dishonest because you do not want to cave in against your false notions and admit that Jesus is every, that Jesus is the only one that could fulfill. How can Messiah come now and be linked to Bethlehem when the records are lost? The window has closed. I mean, that's really an easy conversation, demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament and that he is uh, equal with God in the Old Testament. It's really is a precedence for him showing up as the angel of the Lord. It's precedence for him coming in human form. This has happened before. There really is no excuse for these things, but you should hear them out anyway, because some of you may question, well, how do the Jews explain these verses? And they explain them away. Verse 37, therefore, now he's saying, because of what I just said about this, we'll go back up to verse 37, and there, uh, well, verse 36, for David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, Christ is now giving the exposition. David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. So the, the people didn't have these hang-ups. They were sitting on the edge of their seats, teach us. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they weren't common in their own eyes. They were above these people. And they did not hear him gladly. But he's got everybody's attention, that's for sure, at this moment. He himself, David's son, and Israel's Messiah. Recently, he had just entered the city proclaiming this by the shouts of Hosanna. Save us now, O Lord. The temple records, as I mentioned, his teachings, his miracles, all of it unprecedented, all wrapped up in one person, all the verses pointing to him. God showed David through the Holy Spirit that his descendant would be master, would be Lord, would be related to him according to the humanity of Christ. In those days when David wrote and when they read here in the days of Christ, being a son or a descendant of someone indicated a hierarchy. The son was subordinate to the father. Christ asked then, if, if the Lord is David's son, how can David be subordinate to the son? Unless there's something about this son that is different from all the rest. That's the point of Psalm 110. That is the point of what the Lord is saying. This is different. And again, Psalm 110, he just used the first verse. You take the whole psalm together, it just amplifies. He says he's coming as Mechizedek. He's not only going to be royal, he's going to be priestly. You can't make these things up. You can't write this down like a book and have these kind of connections. He is the exception because... 
From David's line came Messiah. Messiah is divine. They did not want to hear it coming from the mouth of Jesus. And to this day, the Jews point at Jesus and said, if he was Messiah, he would have taken over the world. They leave out the part about he was first taking our sins from us. Bruised for our transgressions. Chastisement for our peace upon him. And this is blindness. This is what Paul said. My people are blind. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He writes that in Romans. They want God, but they want God to conform to their theology instead of having their theology submit to God and be received from God. How could Messiah be both inferior to David as a son and superior to David as Lord? They didn't want to answer unless he was the son and he is divine and he is Messiah. And so Jesus concludes that he is the second figure. He is the second Lord in our English, the, the Yahweh. He is the Adonai, superior at the right hand of Yahweh, superior to David. An exclusive son, incidentally. And so he says, let them answer the question. Was David mistaken? Is the scripture false? Was the Holy Spirit not on David? Because if you say that, then you've, you've got no more Bible. They could not say that. He won't even wait for their answer because he knows it's not going to be honest. The son of David was merely a human descendant. The son of man. And... We accept that, and Jesus spoke of himself as the Son of Man, speaking of his lineage to David and his humanity, making himself a servant for us. Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 2. They were supposed to figure this out. This was not calculus. This was not something deep. You know, I can't get this. Nathaniel figured it out when he first met Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 49, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You can't say, he couldn't say this about David in the, with the same meaning. You could say David was a son of God. David was a king of Israel. But Nathaniel, using the definite articles, he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. These are not casual statements. This is not something you could say about anybody else. They are exclusive. They didn't figure it out. Mark 2.10, Mark writes of Jesus speaking, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And don't we love it? We come in and we sing about him forgiving us for our sins because our sins are many. And his mercy and forgiveness is profound. What if God would display our sins up on a screen? Oh, man. <laughs> I'd come to see yours. <laughs> Try to stop you from seeing mine. The thoughts that we may have about others, you know, that this is the sin, the crossing of the line, the trespasses. And the mercy just wipes it all away. The common people heard him gladly, and they still do. But the self-impressed and the self-righteous, they struggle with this, regardless of what they call themselves. They can call themselves Christians if they want, but if they're not subject to his lordship, uh, there's a very serious concern. Verse 38, 
Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplace. So the eyes of Christ is teaching. He picks up on the scribes and he singles them out. How come the scribes say? And then he lays it all out. They're speechless. And then he continues with his teaching. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes. Because he saw their dirt who desire to go around in long robes. He's singling them out. In contrast to the common people of 37, verse 37, beware of the scribes who crave celebrity status. Beware of pastors who crave celebrity status. Beware of musicians, especially those who use Jesus' name for celebrity status. Fine, you want to sing songs, you have this gift, do it. Bless the people. But don't start craving their applause when they see you in public. Those who the people spiritually depended upon. Those who were entrusted with tending the sheep, upholding civility as given by Moses in the laws that concern civil rights of people. They did not do. As a class... The scribes, the lawyers, the Pharisees, Sadducees, now the priests, even the Herodians, as a class, broken was their sense of principle. They, they lost their way, and they were very comfortable being lost. And when someone came along and showed them the way, most of them were not interested. Some of them were, but most were not. They were immersed and self-serving pride, they were out of harmony with God. And so Christ says who, here in verse 38, who desire to go around in long robes. Well, in those days, these long robes that he is referring to that were around him as he was teaching was a sign that you were one of the learned. That was, it was a status symbol. I, you know, I'm smarter than you. I'm better than you. I'm closer to God than you. I've got more authority than you. I can influence the courts over you. You better respect me when you see me walking down the street. That's what he is addressing here. To this day, some denominations have their clergy wear on their robes stripes on the sleeves. One stripe means I have a bachelor's degree in theology. Two stripes means I have a master's degree. And then there is the coveted three-striper. I have a Ph.D. in theology. Is it not, notice me, I am the smarter one. I am in the up. And I wonder, how do they do this and have this in their Bibles? How do you get a PhD in theology knowing what it says about the scribes and kind of dismiss it and assume the same guilt as they did in this subject? And some of the good men I've seen, you know, otherwise good men have done it because the people that they preach to demand that they have these credentials. I suggest they stop preaching to those people and go find people who don't demand such credentials. Have they ever considered this? Some suppose I'm wrong for pointing this out. This is not sour grapes. This is just scripture. Credentials, when it comes to preaching God's word, are similar to the circumcision that Paul had to deal with, with the Judaizers, as he was sharing the gospel with Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. They wanted to kill him for saying that. They tried, too. 
They did persecute him. They did hurt him physically. They hurt his ministry. They went in back of him and tried to undo everything he did. So he writes to the Galatians. Are you so foolish, having begun in the flesh and now being made perfect in the spirit? What is your problem? Who has bewitched you? Well, it was those people that don't like hearing you say these things to them because they want to feel special. Paul continues, he says, circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters, end quote. And that's what Christ was trying to say to all these other Pharisees, Sadducees, keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Certain professions, of course, must have credentials and be regulated. I do not want a Walmart shopper to operate on me. I want it to be someone who has the credentials, who's gone to school, who knows what they're talking about. But when it comes to preaching the truth, the rule book is the scripture. That is the authority. That's what meant by sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our authority for life. I am not comfortable with calling a man his eminence. I would be very, I would be, I would yell at the person who called me the right honorable reverend. It gets out of hand. But then there are those that do it and find out they love it. Well, we have uh, his eminence as the pastor of our flock. Samuel was told something by God that was so important that he wrote it down. So important by, to God that it was preserved. You know this verse. For Yahweh does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. God is looking at what's on the inside, not what's up on your wall. These guys, since they they couldn't bring the wall to the people at the marketplace, they brought their robes. You see, I've got the certificate hanging over my desk, which is fine in other professions. Not here. You cannot arrive. Whatever you receive from God in preaching belongs to him. And you dare not say, it's mine. I figured it out. I didn't need the Holy Spirit. I just, you know, I'm really a smart guy. That would be blasphemous. He says they love greetings in the marketplace. Yearning for attention. They had become celebrities. In their minds, they were the somebodies and deserved to be treated as superiors by the common people. And woe to you if you did not do it. How do we know that? Well, they killed Christ for not doing it. They hated him. For daring to dismiss them. This kind of thinking is alive and well in any prideful environment. Credentials are meaningless if the heart is wrong. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 12. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. In other words, they're fools. We're going around acting like if I could, I see I'm smarter than you. I got a 90 on the test. You got a 45. I don't mean pistol. I mean score. And... And therefore, I'm smarter than you. You're comparing yourself with you. I mean, the people do this who aren't Christian. They say, well, I'm a good person. Well, not next to Christ, you're not. And if you compare yourself with other human beings, you're not wise. The standard is God. And that in Christ Jesus. And the apostles of Jesus Christ uh, did not commend themselves or esteem themselves in their position. But if anybody had the right to say, I am an apostle, it would be the hand-picked men of Christ 
There were 13, only 13 chosen by Christ that we know of in our scripture. One was disqualified, and that leaves 12. 12 men could stay, stand and say, uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, because God assigned that title to them. Uh, in fact, in, in Revelation, in, when Christ is talking to the churches, he says, I know you can't tolerate those who say they are apostles, and they are not. And then he went on to say, but I got some trouble with you too. Verse 39, the best seats in the synagogue and the best places at feasts. They wanted a public display. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to nod at them and smile at them and say, oh, rabbi, so-and-so in the marketplace to have a rabbi sighting. When you had an event, you had to make room for them. They had to have the best seats. This is self-importance. And it had to be paraded and celebrated and again, these, these guys carried a big punch. I don't mean punch bowl. I mean they carried a, a, a lot of power and they could make your life miserable. And that's Christ's going to get to that in, in a minute in verse 40. But before we do, they wanted to be paraded around. Paul writes this to the Corinthians. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. He probably didn't even have these guys in mind because he's so busy dealing with other guys who were doing the same thing. <laughs> there are many Christians that read these verses and put them on their, you know, bumper stickers or whatever. They post them and then trample them. It should make us all shiver a little bit. In verse 40, now he's, Christ is going to point out, this is why I'm saying the things I'm saying to you. And they knew it. The audience knew it. He says, who devour widows, houses. Are you kidding me? Food, shelter, clothing. They're going to steal that? And for pretense, make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. So here's why he's singling them out. In the midst of whatever he was teaching, he singles them out. It's like he caught a glance at one and it just got him going or something. Just, uh, just very real, the way it, it is presented and how it happened. Before I became a Christian, I thought the Bible was just a bunch of like poems or something about what people thought God was. I didn't understand the how genuine the experience inside the Bible, how genuine they are, how relative they are for every generation. No matter what little changes here and there the people may go through, sin is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It will damn you to a hell that you can't get out of forever. So it had to be said to these men. Why is that? Again, they were entrusted with tending the, the, the people. They had bullied, they had beaten, and they had bruised the people. And they still wanted to be applauded and be treated as though they were innocent. And the only one that could really get in their face did it. They corrupted their own court system. You, for personal gain, you could not get justice with these guys. Not if the other side had something better to, to offer. They'd take a bribe very quickly. Luke writes in chapter 7, But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves. They were above the law. They held people to the law and just not themselves. C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, Of all bad men, religious men are the worst. When religious people are bad, they are super bad. They feel so justified. They're lying about, oh, it's just a, it's just a bundle of tragedy. What a witness for hell. Long prayers. L long prayers are hard enough to listen to. 
when they're pretending on top of it. Oh, man. Uh, you know, those preachy prayers that are going to correct you. And <laughs> like, can't you just wait for the Holy Spirit to say something to you or don't say anything? It's okay. It's okay if you just agree because he's saying something to me. He's telling you that you should start saying, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm having a little fun with that. Listen, I've been in a lot of prayers for over, for decades. And I still get flashbacks of some bad ones from long ago. I was like, ooh, that was really tough. I had to intercept that one. Anyway, it's not fun to grab somebody after a prayer and say, listen, I don't know where you got that from, but that's not biblical. <laughs> and then watch them try to defend it. It's not fun at all. Uh, anyway, uh, we come back to, we're still in verse 40. And we don't object to him singling them out as impersonators and silencing them. Jesus Christ, the man, the Son of God, don't be offended by that description of his humanity. 1 Timothy 2, for there is one God and one mediator between God and Mary ain't her. No offense to Mary. We got to be careful. We love her. She is one of the dynamos of Scripture. And we will not, because others abuse her, we will not abuse her too. But we do want to make it clear that you might as well pray to the goddess Tammuz as well, because you're not supposed to talk to the dead. You're not supposed to talk to anybody but God if they're not in this life anymore. It is a sin. And if you say, well, I don't like hearing that, then you should go to the church that preaches it's okay to pray to her, because you ain't going to get a, a church that upholds the word. Because there is one mediator. Here would have been a good opportunity to say there's two of them. But there's not. And why it's important is because people go to hell over this kind of stuff. You want a pastor to sweep that under the rug and pretend it's not going on because it might offend somebody? Hell's going to be a lot more offensive to you than what I could ever say to you. I'm not saying it as though I'm puffed up. I have to sound loving when I say these things and not <laughs> try to tone down the passion some. Uh, but, uh, but I'm not going to say it any other way than reading the scripture. For there is one mediator. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. And that is Paul saying he has been here. He was born of a virgin. He walked among us. John said, we saw him. We touched him. We were with him. And you're going to try to come here and tell us that he was a phantom? That's what all 1 John is about. Telling the Gnostics that they're, they're, what they believe in is man-made. Well, it comes out of hell. But the men were on the assembly line. There will, he, Christ continues in verse 40. These will receive greater condemnation. Well, I just alluded to that. There are levels of judgment. Not everybody in hell is going to have the same intensity of hell. Let's take Mao Zedong for a minute. Deliberately, he murdered, he persecuted... He tortured, he starved, brainwashed, estimated 40 to 80 million people. You think he's going to have a lesser judgment than a lot of other people? Or stronger judgment? What about those who enrich themselves with the clinics that will murder the unborn? Do you think they're going to just get off easy? If they don't repent in this life and find grace and mercy? What about those who demand celebrating sexual perversity? How does, how does who you have sex with even become a public issue? 
homosexuality. They want you to bow down to the practice. Not enough to say live and let live. You have to have one a whole month to celebrate it. They've created flags and banners and websites and all sorts of stuff trying to jam it down the face of the people. You think their judgment's going to go easy on them? I have to add this. They don't like this. They don't care how much you love them. They want you to bow down. Lot living in Sodom and Gomorrah, Peter said it vexed his soul like it does yours. However, what did Abraham do over Sodom and Gomorrah? He interceded. He tried to save them. He said, what if? And he started out with 50. And he gets it until God shuts them down. Okay, 10, that's it. (laughs) If I find 10, and he couldn't find 10. We have to remember that we are not to hate them. We are to hate what has happened to them. We can even hate to some degree what they are doing, but you have to be careful because hell or hate is a fire that can get out of control very quickly. And may our spirit be dominated by love. We can be passionate, and we don't back down from this. Unfortunately for those who reject the gospel, by the time they realize it was not a myth, it was going to be too late. The hellfires will be around them already. Verse 41. Before we go to verse 41, let's read that again at the bottom of verse 40. These will receive greater condemnation. There is Christ saying there are, there's going to be pain for this. And we have to echo what he teaches. Verse 41. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury and many who were rich put in much. So here are the eyes of Jesus again. He saw the Pharisees. He saw how they mistreated people. He saw their judgment. And now he sees the treasury. And looking at verse 41, it says, Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. Not what they put in, how they did it. Their hearts, what was happening. Only he could pull this off. He still sits opposite the money boxes in the church, and he still sees how the people give. Incidentally, the treasury was located in the temple in the court of the women. So historians tell us. Verse 42. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrans. It sounds like she threw insects in the box, if you ask me. But the, she's one of the common people, incidentally. This is... a about an eighth of a cent. He says quadrads, uh, rands, because it is uh, for his Roman audience. That Mark writes, as we mentioned at the beginning of Mark, it is believed he wrote with the Roman people um, in mind, those who spoke the Latin and were of that culture. And we get this to this by these little clues that are throughout his gospel, and that's one of them. Uh, if he was writing with knowledge to say uh, a, a, a a Chinese audience, he would have used a Chinese word for money at this point, or if it was German, etc. So he, they, they, the readers go, oh, okay, that's not really much money she put in there. So others probably gave a tenth. She gives one hundredth. She gives it all. And you might say, and I've always thought, looked at this and said, yeah, well, I mean, what can you buy with two mites anyway? Thinking that, I'm just troubled by that. 
So she gave all she had, but even if she kept it, what could she do with it anyway? Well, that's a big point that's going to come up from this. And, okay, I'll just tell you now. And when I do that, I get lost, and I, I, I get back in my head, I should have waited. But it's too good of a point, I think. She wasn't bitter at God because she was a widow and because she was poor. Were she bitter, she wouldn't put nothing in there. Over the years, I've had people tell me, well, I don't have a job right now, Pastor, so I can't tithe. This is something I can do. And it's like, it's not a barter system. You still have money. Put two pennies in. But they can't. Their pride won't let them. God will let them. God would receive it. Even if it was just, Lord, I don't have any money. I've got two cents as a token, as a deposit of when things get better, I'll follow up. But pride gets in the way. I'm not giving God two cents. Why? He took two mites. He did not say to this woman, how dare you put in two mites? He writes her name, well, without her name, he writes her down for us through all remaining of, of, of remains of history. The temple would be no better off because of her donation. No, they're not going to say, well, now we can get that big sofa that we wanted. for. There's nothing they could do with her offering. But she would be better off, and she knew it. She was giving because she loved God. That was why she gave, and that is how she gave, and that is what he picked up on. His eyes saw that, and he singles her out now, but not like the Pharisees, as a champion of the faith. Giving to God benefits us. That's not a sales pitch. You don't believe it? Fine, don't believe it. But that's not what the Scripture teaches. Malachi gets all over that. Cheapskates... Cheapskates look for a reason not to give every single time because they're cheap uh, when it comes to others. Believers look for an opportunity to bless God in return, to please him, even if it hurts. That's what sacrifice is all about. David said, I'm not giving anything to God. It doesn't cost me something. So you have the two cents. You don't want to put it in. Spend your pride. Throw it in there. Go against yourself in honor to the Lord. Talk to him. Tell him about it. But whatever you do, don't act like it doesn't matter. Of those who have tried to wiggle out like that over the years, I don't know after I tell them, go put anything in there, a nickel, any, a penny. I don't know if they've ever done it or not. I get the impression always that they haven't, that they were already justifying this behavior and they wanted me to sort of bless it, like, oh, well, I understand, brother. No, I, I don't understand. The poor were still required to bring turtle doves down to the temple. They were not excused. And there was nothing for them to do. They could capture them. Anyway, she gave out of a sense of love, of course, real love, and duty. Duty runs a little bit deeper than responsibility to me. There's a greater sense of honor belongs to doing your duty. Uh, no, I have to do this. And not only am I supposed to do this, I must do this. I am duty-bound. Uh, love is even more intense. When you have love, as Paul spoke of, then duty is wrapped up within it. Uh, but anyway, there is no evidence that she was rewarded for this. Of course, um, someone like uh, Joyce Myers would say she after that, she got a Cadillac. Hellish teaching. If she went to her grave the way she went to that treasury box, that would be fine. 
Because when she got to heaven, he settled it in her favor. Verse 43. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Surely I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. I see my time's almost up, but I can knock this out. Uh, Lord willing, I want to sound proud and then get laid out in front of you. Um, It'd be like getting knocked out in front of mom. That'd be bad. Anyway, there's a basketball player. Larry Bird would always say stuff to players, and he'd say things like, I hope your mom's not watching because I'm going to score a lot on you today. <laughs> and he'd get in their head, and they, he just was, just, it was amazing. Anyway, she didn't know the Lord was looking, but he was looking, and he still is, as I mentioned before, and that is not to scare you to do what I want you to do. That is just a fact, and I'm not going to withhold that fact if it's uncomfortable or not. It's just the way it is. And she did not, as I mentioned, know that it was so important to God that he called his disciples. Well, you got to see this. And he took the time to tell them, and they took the time to write it down so we have it forever. How did she put in more as a widow and a pauper? Having nothing, she gave without bitterness. Verse 44. For they all put in out of their abundance. Again, he's talking to his disciples. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had, her whole livelihood. Why, Lord? Why? Because she did not hold a grudge against God because life wasn't turning out the way she wanted it to turn out. To not have a husband in those days was really uh, tough on you economically. She's not bitter. We get bitter at little things like, I didn't get, you know, I didn't, and I really wanted... And so he links her action to Mark twelve thirty. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. She carries it out. And this explanation of whose image is on you, Caesar's or God? And she acts on, on this. She's one of the heroes of the Bible. Um, you could do a whole topical on this. I do think that churches that beg for money portray God as broke. And I don't think that God should be portrayed that way. Um, I'm not going to spend any more time on this except these two verses. I have really a lot to say about this. I've overbooked. But, but I feel like the Spirit's saying, you know what, just end this, okay? So that's what I'm going to do. But I have a green light on these two verses. Psalm 50, verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. God's never broke. Philippians 4.12, I know how to be abased. I've been troubled by this verse a lot. Because I had ice cream last night before bed, four scoops. Because I didn't want to get freezer burn. So, so I figured, and just in case, I put some pineapples and cherries on top. Anyway, <laughs> that's a confession. Uh the doctor said, don't eat and go to sleep. But I find sleep comes better when you eat. <laughs> but it didn't last night. Anyway, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound everywhere. And in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And when I'm suffering with something, usually it's mental, you know, not... <laughs> well, usually it's in my head. And I'm just troubled by something. 
I just say to myself, suffer. And it helps. It's been helping. Just suffer instead of trying to wiggle out. Well, let's pray. Our Father, once again, your word has for us so many gems, so many valuable things for us to take with us through the week, through the days, through the life. We are very mindful of this, and we know that once we leave the sanctuary, uh, it's back on. All the struggles, the flesh, other people, circumstances in life, being ripped off and cheated. We know that. But what's more, we know that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And we will not be bitter at these things, but we will, we will commit, Lord, find us committing to you even more. Thank you for your word. And now, Lord, it's that time for me to address any who might be listening who have never opened their heart to you. If you're listening and you've never opened your heart to Jesus Christ, you have to be told what you already know, that you are a sinner. There are dirty things about you that God is not going to accept. You can't fix it on your own. You must come to him. These are the terms, and they are right, and they are good. Regardless of what a lying and ignorant world has to say, the word of God is faithful. And he is too. And if you open your heart to receive him, your sins will be dealt with and you will be better. And you will be better off too. If you say, as an example, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your laws. There's no one else who died for me, who was good enough to die for me, to take my sin away. And so I come to you. I thank you. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. And I ask you from this day forward to have me as your servant and you be my Lord. Now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they not hesitate to share it with one of the pastors so that one of the first things they do after their confession is make it public. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.